Welcome to the State Change Podcast, where we discuss the issues and subjects that surround the construction of the new internet. I'm your host, Arthur Falls. The surprising outcome of the last US presidential election brought attention to the effect fake news and social media manipulation can have on public thought. Today we are going to take a deep look at what exactly took place, while considering possible solutions to the problems we uncover. Barrett Anderson and Brett Horvath, co-founders of Scout.ai, join us to discuss their article, The Rise of the Weaponized AI Propaganda Machine, while media and marketing guru Amanda Guterman of Consensus provides an industry perspective. flesh out the background on me a little bit. I worked with Ariana Huffington for a number of years, helping her build and scale the blog platform. Then I left and started a quote-unquote decentralized um, media company called Slant. Um, I ran that for a couple of years and then joined Consensus about six months ago. So it's been, oh, awesome. um, it's been a fun, it's been a fun, thank you. Uh, it's been a fun ride. Um, I learned about consen- uh, Consensus and blockchain through Slant, because we were we were doing this model where we were giving a revenue share to our creators. We were giving them like a percent of ad, ad revenue. We were dealing with a huge amount of micropayments. So that's how I first kind of intersected blockchain. And I think yeah. that I offer solutions or at least a platform for further thought to a lot of the issues in the media ecosystem right now. I didn't know that's what Slant's uh, approach was, was... Uh that was micropayments. That's really cool. And I think there's a lot of really interesting experiments to run around contribution from decentralized communities. So yeah, I, I could see where one one thought connects to the next one. Totally. We were, we were hoping they wouldn't be so micro, but <laughs> everything <laughs> how it is. <laughs> Brett and Barrett, what led you to write, uh, to write the piece in particular? And what are your, uh, yeah, what are your respective backgrounds? You want to go first? Sure. You pop you pop in. Yeah. So so yeah, my background has really been at the intersection of technology and politics for quite a while. Um, I came out of high school wanting to run a presidential campaign someday and went to Capitol Hill and worked on worked for a congressman and then eventually managed a couple campaigns back in Washington State. But I was really through that I, I got fixated on the power of network communications and how it was changing power and society and business. So that's when I jumped into technology entrepreneurship and uh, did my first startup. So everything I've done since then is kind of weaved through those those two themes. And the idea for this piece kind of came early on last fall when Barrett and I were talking about how Russia might affect the election and how there was so much misinformation uh, going on. And so talked about this idea of what if someone eventually built what we call the truth machine, some distributed way uh, that um, a group of algorithms and humans could decipher whether something was was accurate or not. Um, and after the election of Donald Trump, we said, whoa, we, we need to get something. We need to write something like this because the world might need need this if it's built properly. And so I started digging up and uh, thinking about that idea. And through their research, I, I discovered some aspects of what this company Cambridge Analytica was doing and what was going on. And, and Barrett was the one that identified, wait, there's there's something here with the story of Trump and Russia and Cambridge Analytica and took that and started doing a ton of original reporting and talking to researchers uh, all over the world about what might happen. 
Yeah, my background is I, I actually grew up working with my family to run a conference called Future and Review. Um, and, and Future and Review is a conference that brings together uh, C-level executives, people like Elon Musk and Vince Cerf and Vinod Kosla to talk about where technology is headed in the next five to ten years and how we can use it to solve problems in the world. Um, so that combined with, with journalism was really where I came from. Um, and so when Brett and I actually are in a in kind of a fun and unique situation because we're both married and we are co-founders of Scout. Um, and, and we co-wrote this piece together. So when Brett started looking into the idea of a truth machine, you know, I thought this was like totally fascinating. He's brilliant and comes up with a lot of brilliant ideas like this. So it was fun. It was fun to kind of hear his thinking around like what a truth machine could look like and, and, and how, you know, different, uh, t- like types of, uh, fact checking mechanisms and, and systems could be put in place. But the more that we started looking into and digging into uh, this issue, the more I, we realized, like we came across the work of a researcher called Jonathan Albright, um, who, who is at Elon University. And Jonathan, actually not too far after the election, uncovered this, he did a, did a web crawl and uncovered this network of far-right pro- Russian propaganda sites and, and also... Um, fake news sites that were all working in concert to actually surge different search terms. And this was happening pretty much in in direct correlation to times when Donald Trump was struggling or when like bad news came out uh, in relation to him. And so so Jonathan really was was kind of the key for us and, and the entry point for us into realizing, oh my gosh, there's there has to be a bigger story here. Um, and that was when we started you know, we, we talked to Jonathan a few times. We, we talked to a few other researchers all over the world, people who have been studying this stuff for years and uh, found that there really was a much, much bigger picture here that that needed the world. I, I felt the world and I think we both felt the world really needed to know about. What is really going on here is this new uh, idea of an automated propaganda machine has been uh, has been realized by this company, Cambridge Analytica, and directly deployed in the 2016 presidential campaign by the uh, by the Trump campaign. And more interestingly, or most interestingly, I guess, is that it is almost exclusively uh, right wing leaning, which gives this uh, this idea that a a new tool or this new apparatus gives the the wielder a an unfair advantage. In influencing public discourse and public uh, public thought, really, because this is about influencing thought. Absolutely, and that's one of the parts that we really tried to highlight. Is there's been a battle for you know for propaganda, the different mediums of propaganda for a long time, whether it's TV or radio, um, print. But the thing that's different about this is uh, the person who wields it, as you as you speak. They, the more data they have, the more of a network effect, and they're able to unleash something far more insidious, which is personalized, adaptive, and ultimately addictive propaganda. And we saw this kind of strange effect where uh, someone either in uh, the Trump universe or in Russia would post a fake news story or a real news story. Then they would follow that user around the web um, through, through ad networks and serve them up personalized ads that were based on their psychographic profile. 
and get them to click on it. And the idea was to get them to click on an AstroTurf organization or some kind of Facebook page um, or email list um, that could then serve them this drip marketing campaign that could get better and better and keep them on what Jonathan Albright called emotional leashes. Um, so that's that's the really, truly insidious nature of it. And, you know, it's funny, we, we didn't go too far into the story in... Um, and the Trump connection to, to Russia, we, we looked at what the, the data was there. Um, and even with kind of what I would say was a more conservative approach in drawing that connection, we were called by some conspiracy theorists for looking at that. But it's so fascinating how quickly the story has changed. Just a couple of weeks ago, um, it came out that the FBI investigation is looking into automated Russian bots and how they coordinated with right wing media sources like Breitbart News. And how that played out is things like when the Access Hollywood tape was published, um, which was devastating for the Trump campaign, within an hour, there was the release of the, the John Podesta emails. And all this, this vast network of Twitter accounts, right-wing blogs, uh, Russian bots, all went activated at the same time to, to um, change search results for Trump. Uh, to change the type of topics that came up. So yeah, it wasn't just one one company. It wasn't just one uh, master switch. Uh, there was definitely some some coordination uh, and some centralization, but it was this it was a distributed machine. It was it was but it was connected and could amplify its capability due to its network effects. Yeah, and and Brett mentioned this. I mean, I I, I want to just be clear because you mentioned that Cambridge Analytica was responsible for this. Cambridge Analytica was responsible for one part of this right they were responsible for for the um targeted uh dark ads on facebook that only those who received them could see that were targeted at people's personality psychographics in addition to that there were also all of these networks of news sites there were um uh russia has actually just recently in, in the media been accused of hiring uh, a thousand people to help create fake pro social media profiles to skew the the u.s election but this is something that we reported on Thanks to um, some research by uh, a fellow named, uh, sorry, what? Sam Woolley, Sam Sam who's at the University of Oxford. And Sam and his team have, have spent years researching bots, which they, as they call them, which are basically people who create fake social media profiles, sometimes hundreds of them, and then operate all of them um, with several kind of outcomes in mind, right? One is to help Basically, campaigns around the world will, will hire these networks of bots to help either inflate the beliefs and, and the messages of candidates or to squash the messages and conversation coming from, you know, their opponents. So they'll come into on Facebook or on Twitter or on, in the comment section of The New York Times, The Washington Post, and they'll kind of try to confuse people and skew the conversation toward the side that has by which they've been hired. So it's really like, it's important to understand that Cambridge Analytica is an important part of this, but it's really only one part. And they're they're like part of this big network that is actually working together to, to make this happen. So Amanda, as someone who has been working in, uh, in online marketing and in, uh, in social media for, uh, for a long time, and obviously you're a successful entrepreneur yourself, how does this uh, compare to how, the way things have worked in the past? And, and is this surprising? Is this, is this something that, uh, that could have been anticipated? 
So I think this absolutely could have been anticipated and actually was anticipated. It was actually really crazy. Um, we were watching the latest season of, um, of Homeland. And in, in the latest season of Homeland, there is an organization which is in a basement. It's in the United States where they where it's a private secret dark organization that's paid all of these quote unquote sock puppets to create fake profiles, to post fake news, to troll comment sections and to sway public opinion. So this is something that that always could have happened and that the business models and media have, have allowed for a while. I think it's interesting that it's now the conversation that it is because this really has its roots in the time when media first went online. There's a really great um, Atlantic piece, which is called something like um, audiences love candy, but they'll tell you that they like to eat their vegetables. Um, we used to just have data, uh, whether, whether it's political polls or whether it's media consumption on what people would self-report that they liked. So if you send out a flyer to all of the readers of a newspaper, people will say, I love reading you know, business news, I love reading uh, political news. And but then when when we moved media online, we could actually use analytics tools and trackers to figure out that no, that isn't what audience is like. And we got very good at creating the kind of outrage generating stories, the same kind of exaggerative stories or salacious stories that we found, according to data, actually generated um, more clicks and more readers. So extrapolate that model out to um to the social media verse and it's not surprising that fake news with exaggerative or exciting headlines can can latch on because the patterns are are knowable um of what kinds of things audiences on facebook with different characteristics will click on um all of that data has been gathered over the past decade or so and and now that all this data is knowable it can be used for all kinds of different ends and the interesting part is that your data from your different activities can be used to influence you to make decisions that aren't in your best interest. And that's when, that, that's the moment when I think it's a, an, an, an issue people should really be talking about and people should be wary of because all of our different opinions always came from, but like, how, how did you get the opinions you have? It used to be that people would have certain opinions because they were their parents' opinions or they were their friends' opinions. Uh, there, there was kind of a, a community aspect to it. There was, a, there was a media aspect, but there never used to be this laser focus using, you know, rich data sets to figure out exactly how to influence a person and to have an interested party come and pay somebody with, with all of this wealth of information <laughs> to do it. So, so that really changed the game. And we, we're putting all of this data out we're giving all of this identity information to Facebook, and we have really no control over, over how it's used. And that's definitely something that gives me pause. And I think it's an interesting um, moment of intersection for blockchain and blockchain-based identity. So when you say uh, – so there are two questions uh, I have uh, to run on from that, Amanda. The first is when you mentioned the – uh, the nature of online publishing and the online uh, and the business of of online media that that has uh, has led to this to an extent, and that gives me a sense that this is something that is the end result of selection pressure for this kind of information, which which sounds 
you know, which gives me kind of pause for for pessimism. And then you say uh, you say blockchain identity might have a uh, might pose a solution, or or have a uh, in some way change uh, this uh, this trend toward. I don't know. I don't even know what to describe it. It's a it's a kind of customized experience of the information world. Sure. So so right now, um, in order to interact with the internet, you need to have some kind of identity. And that identity right now is being provided by entities like Google or Facebook. They're gathering all of the information connected to you, and then they're leveraging it for a massive profit. They're, they're selling it to advertisers. Um, they're I think Facebook makes $13 for every new user. Most of Facebook and Google's revenue is, is from advertising and from um, you know, leveraging data. We've put all this data out into the world about ourselves and we have no control over how it's used. And we can't put the cap back in the bag. But what we can do is raise awareness about this fact and create an alternative system where people can have control over the data connected to their identity. So one of the, um, the, the projects that we're working on at, at Consensus is called, it's called Uport, and it's a blockchain-based identity that you can use to log in to any kind of Web3 service or product. And the difference about it is that it's self-sovereign in that you have control over all of the data connected to you, and you can selectively reveal or conceal that data to whomever you'd like. And that has challenges and interesting aspects to it as well. But I think giving people control over their information as opposed to putting it in the hands of, of third parties who can, who can sell it, who can use it for all kinds of different, different purposes could lead to a better experience for a user, especially if it's a user who is aware that their opinions could be co-opted, that their attention could be co-opted and that they could be getting convinced to make decisions that aren't actually serving serving their interests. I, w- I would just like to jump in. Uh, first off, I definitely agreed with Amanda's assessment of how all these, the weaponized AI is based off of the fundamentals of the media landscape. We've kind of been working towards this for a while. And, uh, you know, there wasn't one big jump in the technology. It was we've gotten better and better and better at this. And it was a matter of having a few determined actors who had the sophistication pulled off uh, to really do it. Now, I, I think that I'm really interested in the, the solution about this self-sovereign solution you talk about for, for data permission. I, I think it's powerful to allow individual members to determine who gives out data to, to what actor. I think that's an important part of the solution. But one of the problems is that people are going to get that data whether we give them permission or not. In an age of ubiquitous surveillance with facial recognition technology, um, you know, Target knows that you went into a store and brought, bought a pregnancy test on a certain date, right? And we don't yet have a way to stop that from, from happening. I mean, one of the things that we... Aside from wearing face masks. Yeah, aside from wearing those, like, weird things that come <laughs> up with points. Uh, yeah, uh, but... But we don't really have the, the, the way to do that. And one of the things that we know from our sources is the power behind what uh, the Trump campaign did is they just went out and bought all this data, right? Like sans any ethical limitations, 
you can go on the white market, the gray market, the black market. A lot of it. They and, did. And, yeah, and buy a lot of data. <laughs> um, and that's a huge problem. So one of the ways I think about this is if you're going to get it, if you're, if you're going to protect yourself or users, you have to do it at the interface level, right? Like that is the window and the portal into someone's view on reality in the world. And it can either be empowering and enlightening or manipulative and, and addicting. And most actors on, uh, on the internet really want to do the manipulative and, and addicting um, uh, side of that. So I think it's, it's, it's acknowledging that that's, um, it's going to be really hard for us to individually control the data we have out there. But I think that uh, kind of arming ourselves with uh, the defenses to, to prevent people who are really don't have our interests at heart when we're going and trying to learn and trying to think, buy things we want online or connect with our family and friends. I think we've got to look at that layer really closely as well. So part of this is controlling the information that we allow others access to. At the very least, having, uh, having some controls in place is going to be essential. What about the incoming? What, what about protecting ourselves from from targeted information feeds? Oh, I think that's uh, absolutely a powerful and necessary thing we have to do. Uh, I mean, here's an example of, of a service I would want for myself and I hope someone creates eventually is uh, something you might call skeptic.ai. Uh, if you could create a, a network, basically a machine learning um, algorithm that was built off of uh, awareness and, and um, immunity to different uh, logical fallacies or hints that someone is trying to use deceptive language. Um, if I could have that scan any uh, websites I'm on, any internal emails I'm getting, uh, any messages, that could be an incredibly powerful way to have AI augment my cognition um, that was in protection of me and empowering of me. So I think that's one way where um, using that kind of technology to to bolster our cognition um, it uh, has a lot of potential. Yeah, um, I, I, I agree. I, I, I do think that identity and personal data is is an important layer, though. I mean, I think right now there are all kinds of, you know, money moneyed interests that are trying to capture as much data about human behavior as possible, and there's no countervailing force that's meaningful of consumers trying to have control over their data. Or trying to try to say no, you can't have this. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna shut off this setting. I'm going to insist on controlling this. I'm gonna fight you for this because I think there needs to be a, a sort of consumer identity revolution around. You know, other people are monetizing something on my behalf that belongs to me and that's inherently mine. And I think that might be one of the motivations for that kind of revolution. And I think that identity is really key to it. Whether we're talking about the identity data connected to a person or establishing the veracity of a, of a commentator on a platform. So with, with something like blockchain-based identity, you can ensure that you're a real person as opposed to a bot, as opposed to a sock puppet, um, a lot better than most of, the, most of the solutions we have in place right now. We can create retribution and, and attestation systems so that the burden of proof is a lot higher, so that you have to you know, reveal different different types of data that show that show that you're real and that show that you um, have a certain history. 
so this sounds like what you're talking about, Amanda, is a a tool for establishing, in a sense, uh, information provenance or establishing some kind of uh, some kind of clear or clearer understanding about the nature of the origin of a of of a news story. Say, so for example, a uh, we we've been talking about bots, but if we had a stronger identity system that everyone had access to, it would give us a it would make us better able to determine whether or not a story was upvoted by a bot or uh, or, or a sock puppet, or also... Uh, so many identif- sock puppets on the internet these days. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know, geez, it, just, it used to just be Sesame Street. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think so, the provenance uh, of information is a really interesting one because you start with one link and then that, that, that has one piece of information, then another story repeats that piece of information, then links back to it. And then because it's hyperlinked to something else, Google search ranks it higher. And, you know, it, it could be all linking back to something that didn't have a shred of truth associated with it. So if I, if I wanted to see some kind of platform built going, going off of Brett, it, w- it would be really cool to just be able to track the way that information tunneled through the Internet and to figure out where, where each fact or where each fiction actually originated from. Because there's always a paper trail. Yeah, and also I I think one of the things that I would love to see is uh like something that could say, hey, like this article the language that this article is using makes me think it's trying to change your mind about something, right? Because there's certain there's certain key phrases and sentence structures that actually pop pop up in that kind of content. And I think it would be pretty easy to 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 train a, um an algorithm to recognize those patterns. Uh, in a way that could be really helpful to anyone reading reading a newspaper or a piece of news, right? On on either side, it's like you could you could highlight the articles that were um, more and less fact based, but you could also highlight the articles that were written in ways where it's like, okay, alert! This this has like problematic language in it, and it's probably trying to get you to change your mind about something. And here's what we think it is. Yeah, and I would just. I would connect these two things, uh, you know, these information flows and the defense with a lot of the points you're making, Amanda, about identity. Uh, I think going forward, if we want to protect people's identity and the sacred nature of a, of a civic and open dialogue, there's kind of two parts. You can think about identity as being static and built off of like a data like stack, or you can think about identity as dynamic and fluid and based on flows. And there's kind of an interesting sociology part of this and then uh, information theory, because if you think about the social media profiles of, you know, seven, eight years ago, right at the beginning of the Web 2.0 revolution, your identity was very static. It was like, I am Brett. I am a white male. This is what you know about me. This is my age. These are the bands I love. Right. And it's just listed there where I think what we're learning now is that, um, People aren't like that. Their identities are more fluid and the information flows around them are more fluid. And how this played out in the presidential campaign is the Hillary Clinton campaign was really focused on targeting, but it was to get donations. They're like, okay, what do I know about these people? How do I get donations? Um, That was that was everything. That was the main point of of their engagement and their theory about uh, participation. Now, what the Trump campaign focused on was engagement and behavior change. And I think that's really important. They use this psychographic targeting and they use these automated engagement scripts, not to just target, right? Not to just identify someone and speak to them, 
but to change their behavior in predictable ways, right? And it's that behavior modification. I call it augmented behavior control that is, <laughs> is really insidious because that's actually, you're not just wanting to identify someone and know their identity, you're wanting to reshape it in ways that are either financially or politically beneficial to you, right? And so I think the, the theory of the, the platform or defensibility really needs to take into account that people's identities are fluid because we are so connected to so many streams of information and how do we protect identity in an active way? I think another, yeah, I mean, I, I think another really interesting part of that is that this was going on without anybody knowing. Um, right, yeah. Because it was happening in in these siloed streams, and uh, other other people outside of those bubbles had no visibility into the information that other people with other preference sets were getting, which is why we've never seen a, a set of predictions so historically wrong, and we don't really have good ways predicting events if people are getting information and behavior changing. In information in these silos that is invisible to people in other lanes. It's really, it's really frightening because at, at any given moment, you just have no idea whose opinion is being changed into what. Yeah, exactly. And that, that point is, uh, I think is a, another great one because there's, you get the static versus fluid, the polls that people were taking were snapshots. They were asking people what they thought, which is kind of like, you know, uh, Henry Ford asking, what do you want? Um, sometimes people don't actually give you the right answer. Um, totally, that's the different polls than are like, just like the media surveys. Right, exactly. Which is different than actually, let me run some automated engagement scripts, show you a bunch of ads and see what you click on, and then just start like be changing your behavior because uh, it's more useful to know not what you say you want, but what your behavior is and how I can measure that and then influence it. Yeah, I think the important revolution here has been moving from using information based on what people say they want or say they do to using information on what people are actually doing. Yeah. So how much of this is derived from the network effects of these fake news sources, these bots, and, uh, and these online media campaigns, these online social media campaigns? And, uh, and how much of it is, is, uh, is kind of is centrally driven? Like how, how, you know, is this, is this, you, you mentioned before that there was some distributed element to this, but that it was, there was also a centralized element to it. How do those two, uh, how do those two different elements interact to, to create the effect that we're seeing now? Well, I think, I, I think one of the things that's really interesting, Arthur, is that we actually don't totally know what the centralized element of it is yet, right? There's, it's, what we can see is that we know that Cambridge Analytica was, working on these personalized automated uh, on this personalized automated automated ad test testing that was designed to target and shape your personality. We know that there were Russian trolls who were shaping the conversation on uh, Twitter and Facebook and on major news platforms and and also you know shutting people out and, and intimidating journalists who would cover these types of things. We know that all of these sites would mysteriously react all at once in tandem to instances where Trump was threatened or, or, you know, you know, bad news was coming out about him or, or what have you. But like, what I think is so fascinating right now is that 
we've got the FBI investigating, like, why, why were all those things happening at once, right? And what is that centralized, that, that centralized power? And we don't actually have, like, a, a really firm grip on what that looks like yet. Um, but what we do know is that there's this fellow named Robert Mercer <laughs> who uh, is a billionaire. He is an investor in Cambridge Analytica. He also started out his career, he made all of his money by pioneering the use of algorithms in the hedge fund industry. And um, after he, he left, well, while he was in the hedge fund industry, he invested in Cambridge Analytica. He became one of, he became Trump's largest individual donor um, during his campaign. And he was responsible for shifting Cambridge Analytica from working on Ted Cruz's campaign to Donald Trump's campaign. He's also an investor, a big investor in Breitbart News. And Breitbart News is one of the news platforms that, as you, as you guys I'm sure know, it's far right, far right news, heavily pro-Trump, um, have supported a lot of the kind of alt-right voices that have come up in the last few years and was a big player in that network of news that we talked about earlier um, that, would, that would come up in response to bad PR, bad press about Trump. The interesting thing is uh, we also know that the came like all of those Robert Mercer properties are continuing to work on this stuff already, right? So Cambridge Analytica, for example, is already running White House uh, some White House communications operations. They are um, now targeting campaigns in India and Australia and particularly South America because they have lax data regulations about personal data, like less structured than the U.S. We know that Breitbart has recently set up shop in uh, Germany and France, both of which are facing elections coming up in this year that are very important, that have like pretty uh, similar to the U.S. in terms of like a candidate with an alt-right candidate that is surprisingly popular. And we know that Mercer himself has this uh, history and desire to uh, kind of tear down government, right? He he wants to see government destroyed, and and he's basically said that and expressed that um, along with Steve Bannon. So yeah, and let me just put one more element of it that I think your your listeners will appreciate, especially around the blockchain elements of this. Um, you know, if we think about broad-based social media data on the one end, and then we think about markets, right? Like the stock market, commodities markets, etc. It's often really hard to tell is, is this a distributed phenomenon going on, right? When the price of wheat goes up, is this a distributed phenomenon or are there certain concentrated actors that are ha having heavy influence? Um, Robert Mercer is this fascinating figure because he was a brilliant computer scientist at IBM and one of the pioneers in high frequency trading algorithms. And when you learn, one of, those, one of the powerful aspects of high frequency trading is you start to uncover what are the trim tab, the high leverage places in markets? And it's like, okay, if I put $100 million into this position, what happens to a market? If I, if I put $1.5 billion in this position, what happens? Algorithms, what they, what they do is they, they extend the power of these, uh, these hyper-empowered individuals to, to make experiments, right? Large experiments that can create these black swan events. Um, either flash crashes on the stock market that we saw because of high-frequency trading, or totally disruptive campaign events. And the thing that connects them are these individual people who are empowered with high frequency trade or high frequency trading algorithms or 
automated engagement scripts. And the kind of scary and bizarre part is if this trend continues in social media, we're going to see public sentiment start to look more and more like high-frequency trading rather than a genuine civic dialogue where it's the people who sit on the most powerful data sets and algorithms who can throw lots of money at a position and that suddenly becomes popular opinion. That's a really dangerous uh, world to live in. And I think that distributed uh, ledgers and blockchains could have a really powerful uh, um, part of addressing that. This is starting to sound incredibly dystopic. It is incredibly dystopic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're definitely. We're, we're, yeah, yeah. We're. I mean, we're. This is the when we were writing this. Um, uh, it was. It was definitely kind of a scary moment. Bear and I had some late nights working on this piece, and we said, you know, we gotta, we've got to uncover this and understand what's going on and get more people activated. Um, and one of the things for us that uh, we found is really important is getting getting as many pro-democracy forces around the world to get ready for this, because th- this completely changes politics and public dialogue. And it's not about Republican or Democrat. It's really pro-democracy versus authoritarian, fascist, um, or, or oligarch-based interests. And um, and yeah, so it's it's definitely something that I would encourage everyone to get, get really activated on. Um, Barrett who actually was invited to debate the former prime minister of Sweden just a couple weeks ago at the Brussels Forum, which is a meeting of the transatlantic elite, uh, included John McCain and the secretary general of NATO and president of Estonia. And Barrett was asked to debate. I was asked to debate against the Internet, that the Internet is not a force for democracy. And actually, when I was invited, I was like, I don't know if I can do this. I started my company thanks to the Internet. I met Brett, my husband and co-founder through the internet. Uh, can I really argue against the internet? But the more that I, you know, based on based on this research and just the more that I thought about and put together my argument, the more I realized, yeah, it's, it's really important that global leaders, um, at, particularly in Europe and the United States, but really all over the world, understand like the dynamics that are at play here. Um, and so what I, I, I basically just brought to them this story and, and we wound up actually switching the the public opinion going into the debate. Twenty percent of people in the audience, or eighty percent of people in the audience, thought the, thought that the internet was a force for democracy. And coming out of it, after hearing all of this, uh, it was completely switched. So only about thirty three percent thought it was a force for democracy. Yeah, and, and it was. Uh, I had weird feelings because I was excited to to see Barrett uh, do such a great job at the debate, but that you know not a good outcome for democracy. But for us, that that's really an example of the type of stuff we're motivated to do is is, you know, for us, it's really important to have those world leaders go back to their institutions, their general public and know that this is a this is an existential threat. I mean, this for democracy to survive in the 21st century, I think it's got to come, come confront this head on. And um, Tim Berners-Lee, when he wrote the letter, an open letter to the Web 28 years later, he listed the three biggest threats. And this was the, the third one. And he linked to the, the article that we wrote as the, in the first link, which was both terrifying and an honor at the same time. But um, it's it's something we've all got to confront. What, what an amazing thing to, 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 to argue that position. And I think it's a really fascinating one because I would hate to see a retreat from technology and for people to conclude, you know, the, the internet is bad. It isn't serving our purposes. We right, should we be should frightened just of it and we should retreat from it. So I, part of the reason that I 
got involved with blockchain is because I think the internet, the way that we first built it is broken and that there is a next and a better version of the internet that works a little bit differently that we can build in order to enjoy the type of collaboration and frictionless interaction that we were able to have on the internet without some of the, some of the problems. The, the, the web 2.0 is what we call it, the way we use it today. Um, it functions with, with data silos. So companies are keeping data to themselves instead of sharing it and they're leveraging it as part of their, part of their business proposition. And so, so each of these walled gardens prevents users from having the optimal experience and prevents users from being able to control their data and being able to choose how, how they want to interact with the internet. And the version of the internet that we're building is going to change that and is going to allow people to have a lot more autonomy and a lot more, more self-selection and is going to hopefully cut out a lot of middlemen and a lot of forces that come between people and information or that come between people and counterparties that they're trying to do business with. And it's really interesting to me because I think in, in, in media, people are so bullish on Facebook because Facebook really owns the distribution channels for almost all um, content on the internet. Uh, I think it's actually really an existential threat to Facebook if people en masse think that it isn't a good thing. And, and yeah. think that, you know, the way that it's keeping people in silos is bad and isn't serving their interests. And you can see it from the way Mark Zuckerberg is touring the country. Recently, my Facebook app prompted me to answer the question, um, you know, what, what do you think of Facebook? Do you have a positive opinion I got of that Facebook? too. I was, I was yeah, like, actually so, just about to bring so that up. I told so them I didn't think it was a force for good in the world. So, <laughs> I, hope, so I, hoped it would skew what, I hoped it would skew what they, what they did. And it's so interesting to see something like Facebook have this kind of ethical forcing function. If public opinion does go down a certain road, I think it's possible that Facebook could be forced to or could, could want to adopt something like a, like a blockchain-based <laughs> system or be amenable to some of the um, ideas about Web 3.0 that we have because people demand it. And that's really what we're trying to drive. Yeah, and, and I, I really do think that there is a tremendous opportunity in the blockchain, you know, as I've said several times just in this conversation to be part of the solution. I, I also think, just want to be clear, I think there are a lot of really great people at Facebook, and I think that it has a, a potential to be a, a powerful force in the world. But I think that, to me, this is uh, this is why I, I think that privacy as the only rallying call is not enough. You know, it's not about just protecting the, the data, the, the, like your identity is not a static thing. To me, it's the it's the construction, the active construction of people's identity and that augmented behavior control, right? Because Facebook is not just holding your data because it learns and gets better about knowing what you like. It reinforces that. It, it draws out certain aspects of your personality or it will show you things that you would have never seen because it knows that people like you will stay engaged longer if it has that kind of content. So for it to be a positive force in the world, I think it has to engage its users in the construction of their own identity, of their own cognition, of their own minds at its core. And, um, you know, it's, I, I, it's not enough to just give me one more privacy filter or say, give me just a little bit of different news. Um, I think it, until it activates um, its users in an empowering way, in a learning way, in a, in a 
in a modern media literacy kind of way, I think it's going to continue to have the political uh, liabilities that you're talking about, Amanda. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think it would be fascinating to see um, public opinion as the forcing function to um, help move Facebook in the direction of setting up systems like the type you're talking about, where, where you're, you have a more active role in creating your identity. So is there, is there anything we're missing from this conversation? Is there a missing piece of the puzzle that we haven't, uh, that we haven't identified? Hmm. Um, I would, I would say, I would say, uh, one of the most important elements to think about, I really do think that, that the interface level is, is the key battlefront because that is the mediating portal to how people either get manipulated or, uh, can actively create themselves and understand the world. And I think it's really important to understand that. Because we're having, if we think it's bad now, if we think, you know, what uh, Trump and his allies just pulled off is really bad, um, what's coming could either be infinitely better or worse in the age of augmented reality. When all of these things start to mediate, literally mediate our visual reality through the optic nerve, um, and people start adding different layers on how they see the world through, whether it's self-help coaches or corporations or religions. Um, that's, uh, that's potentially really scary. So, um, but I think it could also open up a, a whole new age of learning and self-discovery. So, um, that's one thing. <laughs> yeah, no, just, just cheaply throw out the, uh, the token optimism. Um, uh, that, that's something <laughs> for another podcast, but, uh, but it, I would just encourage everyone to say, to think about like, as we're confronting this, this media and data landscape, realize that there's a new age of augmented reality that is, is much sooner than we think. Well, I think uh, I think we'll wrap it up there. But before we go, uh, where can people find out more about what you guys do, Amanda Barrett and Brett? You can find all all of our uh, Scout content at Scout.ai. And for and and for consensus, consensus.net. And um, on our website, you can sign up for our weekly email newsletter, which I recommend you do. Fantastic. Well, it's uh, it's been really great, guys. This uh, this was absolutely amazing this is going to get me such a killer episode it was fun so, always fun this is really about. fun I'd love, <laughs> yeah, yeah. To, we should. I'd love to connect with you guys and, and chat more about this I feel like we should all hang and plot the future let's do it I, I uh, mini stalk you on Thank you for joining us for the 40th episode of State Change. Next, Christian Lundqvist, Chief Researcher and Architect of the Uport Project, meets Stephen Wilson, 22-year veteran identity engineer. We look at both the complexities and simplicities of representing ourselves digitally with a view to understand the emerging self-sovereign identity model. If you'd like to hear more, subscribe to State Change on iTunes or find us at statechange.net. You can follow us on Twitter at StateChange underscore. And if you have any comments about the show or any questions, email contact at statechange.net.